We're in the second half of Genesis chapter 41 this morning, <clears throat> beginning at verse 39. We're going to talk, be talking about fruitfulness through faithfulness. As we think about that, in 1940, Clarence Jordan founded uh, Koinonia Farm in Americus, Georgia, as a haven for racial unity and cooperation. In 1954, the Ku Klux Klan burned every building on the farm except Jordan's home. In the midst of the raid, Jordan recognized the voice of a local newspaper reporter. The next day, the reporter showed up for a short story that, uh, about the arson while the rubble was still smoldering. He found Jordan in a field planting seeds. He said to Jordan, I heard the awful news of your tragedy last night, and I came out to do a story on the closing of your farm. Jordan just kept planting and hoeing. The reporter continued his prodding with no response from Jordan. Finally, the reporter said, You've got two PhDs. You put 14 years into this farm, and now there's nothing left. Just how successful do you think you've been? With that statement, Jordan stopped hoeing. He said to the reporter, just don't, You just don't get it, do you? You don't understand us Christians. What we are, uh, what we are about is not success but faithfulness. He's like, that's what it's about. He says, it's not about success. It's, that it's about faithfulness to God. And so even though everything, he had lost everything, he was still planting and hoeing because he was going to be faithful. He was going to rebuild this Koinonia farm so that there could be a haven for racial unity. Judy and I enjoy gardening, but it takes a lot of work. If you've ever gardened, you know it takes a lot of work. We have to be faithful in watering and weeding in order to have a garden that's fruitful. We've found the same to be true in our spiritual growth also. If we want to experience spiritual fruit, we have to be faithful in watering our walk and weeding out, weeding out sin. If we want to see friends and family believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, then we have to be faithful in watering those relationships with God's Word. How many of us have or are currently gardening? Maybe not today, but... <laughs> What's your favorite part of gardening? Is it the watering? Is it the weeding? Yeah, some of you, uh, is it the harvesting? Yeah, that's the best part. What happens when we're not faithful in watering or weeding? There's no harvest, right? There's no harvest. How many of us are faithful in watering our walk with the Lord? Are we currently weeding out sin in our lives? Are we watering relationships with family and friends so they will hear the gospel and believe in Jesus for salvation? I want you to hear a testimony this morning from Gail Brubaker about just how they, she experienced in her family this fruitfulness because of faithfulness. And so she's going to come and share that testimony this morning. Okay, um, I'm excited to be able to share with you what God has just recently done in my family. Um, my parents both made professions of faith a long, long time ago when they were young. They were raised in a church, and they were both in the same youth group. And so they started dating when mom was 15 and dad was 19. And... Um, and then they got married just a few years after that. Um, but when I was nine, 
they hadn't been going to church. They'd stopped going to church. I don't know when. I don't remember when they stopped going to church. But when I was nine, I was going to a local church, and I gave my life to Jesus, and I began to pray for them. Because I didn't see them loving Jesus. I, they obeyed as best they could the Ten Commandments, but um, I didn't see them reading the Bible. We didn't say grace before we pray, uh, before we ate. We, we didn't have prayer time before we went to bed. Um, I didn't see them loving God, so I started to pray for them when I was nine and prayed and prayed and prayed, and then there were times when I didn't pray, and then I would have to confess and ask God to help me to keep praying, help me to keep praying, help me not to give up. And so a lot of years have gone by. Um, A few years, about six, maybe maybe six to eight years ago, mom began showing signs of dementia. And it was not the kind, sweet dementia. It was the nasty dementia type. And so she, her personality began to change. And all the vitriol that was stored up in their hard relationship that they had endured um, began to come out. Um, at one point when she went to the hospital, dad was, and she was coming home, dad said, I can't take care of her. And we can, we told him she would get better if she stayed at home and that she wouldn't be so bad. And he said, well, all right, I'll try it. So he started. So, um, as the dementia got worse, her, her, um, nastiness got worse and she became very verbally abusive towards dad. Um, but she also, in her dementia, began to remember her Sunday school teachers and what they taught her. She began to remember the three ladies that prayed for her as she walked to school on the way to, on, on the way to school. She would stop at friends' house to pick up friends, and their moms would pray over them before they went to school, and she would remember that. Um, she would remember the signs that she saw on the church that she passed as she walked to school. She began to remember all these things about God. And, and her faith began to grow again in her dementia. The deeper her dementia got, the more her faith grew, even though she was nasty. She didn't know she was being nasty because she couldn't remember the things that she said. So dad at the age of 94 was caring for mom at the age of 90, but the dementia was getting worse and dad was getting was getting harder and harder and harder for dad to take care of her because he had his own issues of, you know, struggling to walk and breathe and his strength was leaving. Um, we did not know what to do as a family because she would not allow anyone to come in to help because she thought she was fine because she thought yesterday she did all the work so she didn't have to do it today. And she didn't know, she, when she looked at dad, she couldn't see his old age. She saw him young, like she knew him a long time ago. So she couldn't see his struggles. We did not know what to do. We didn't know how to get her out of the house. We didn't know how to get her help into the house because she wouldn't let anybody in. Um, finally, we, we thought, well, we could maybe get our nephew to come in. So we, the, the family began to pray. Um, and we're not... Like my family is not a church-going family. They, they know about God. They care about God. 
but they have struggles getting along in churches. Um, so we've been praying, praying, praying. And so this one day, um, my brother said, take the extra bed out of her room because then she'll remember that we're getting ready. He wanted to not surprise her with going to my house. We were going to bring her to my house to care for her so that dad could get help and so that she would have somebody to help her 24-7. Um, but you can't, surprise, you can't not surprise a dementia patient because every moment is a new surprise. They act like it's not because they try to cover. So um, we, um, when the assessor came, my sister decided that she was going to be there and she was going to tell mom that she was letting this lady in to assess dad's physical condition. And the mom had no say about it. And that was troubling to my mother because she didn't think they needed help. Um, but when the assessor came, she found that dad had an infection in his legs and needed help immediately. But my sister doesn't drive. And my brother and sister-in-law both had COVID. So my sister called Bob and I, and she said, I need you, and I need you right away. So um, we, brought, we were making food. Bob was making food to take to Wednesday night. So he brought the food over for somebody here to cook in the kitchen, and we left within an hour in time to get dad to his appointment at four. But because we went in the afternoon, and here's a list of becauses, this is what happened that God created to happen to answer our prayer. And this is the amazing thing. I want you to understand how kind God is in the midst of our struggles. So because we went in the afternoon, we had to stay overnight. And I hated to stay overnight. And the only reason I would stay overnight is because I had to. But because we had to stay overnight, we were there while mom was sleeping, which meant that we could make a place for my nephew to move in. She was OK with saying that he could move in, but she didn't want any of her stuff moved from the room where he was going to stay. But that's where we were staying. So late at night, while I was in the room, I had texted Jake, and I said, what's keeping you from moving in? Do you have a timetable? And he said, I'm just waiting for an opportunity and a space. I said, okay, by morning, by morning, Uncle Bob and I will have the closet emptied and all the stuff from the closet put in the room across the hall. And there will be a space on the floor for your dog. And so there will be the whole closet and one, one um, drawer under the closet, a, a space for your dog, and... All of your clothes that are in bags in the other room will be put on the bed. Bring your own sheets so that mom doesn't have to look for sheets because I don't know if they're clean anyway. So because we did that, Jake was able to move in. And because Jake was moving in, mom was beginning to um, go deeper in her dementia because she realized things were happening and she was out of control. Um, so we left. Jake had moved in. And it was, I guess, two days later, my sister called and she said, you need to come back and get mom. And we're like, oh, 
well, how are we going to get her out of the house? Because she said she would fight if we tried to move her out of the house. Um, she said, well, she has stopped. She's forgetting to eat. She, for, she's, she stopped eating and drinking. We don't know if she just stopped because she was mad or if she stopped because she was forgetting to eat or drink. And I found out later when she was at my house, she was forgetting to drink. But... So because she wasn't eating and drinking, she couldn't walk. And because she couldn't walk, she had to go to the hospital. So we took her to the hospital, and then we brought her home from the hospital. And um, she did pretty well with that. Um, but because she was at our house, the nastiness left. She wasn't being nasty just confused. And so she wanted to talk to Dad on the phone. And Dad was like, well, should I talk to her? And we're like, well, let's try it. Well, because she was at our house, they were able to have two wonderful conversations and say, I love you to each other, which they hadn't been able to say to each other for years. And because of the dementia, mom was able to forgive the things that dad had done. And because she wasn't at home, she wasn't remembering all of those things. Um, we had prepared for her to be with us for at least a year or more. But after four days, um, God took her in her sleep. And she had been praying. She had a little card next to her bed that said, I pray the Lord my soul to take. My life is over. And so every night I would pray with her. She'd love the prayers. We would I would sing her to sleep, and, and then I would, um, we would, um, every night we would recite the 23rd Psalm, and she loved the part about fearing no, no evil, going through the shadow of death. Um, so God orchestrated the becauses. Because of this, this happened, and because of that, that happened, and because of that, that happened, and because of that, that happened. And in the process, God answered all of our prayers, even hers, in a, in a, in a way that we could have never imagined. So I want to encourage you, number one, is that if you have family members, just keep praying, because I have prayed for a very long time, a very, very long time. And now I'm praying for dad. He's 94 and he's failing. And I don't know when his days are, but I'm trying. I'm trying to talk to him about it, um, encouraging him to return to the faith of his youth. Um, so I think what I want to just leave you with is that you don't have to be perfect in your prayer life. You don't have to be perfect in the working out of your faith. If you belong to God, he's going to finish what he started in you, and he's going to finish what he started in your loved ones. So keep praying, and don't give up praying. And when you start to falter in praying, ask others to pray with you. Just say, I can't pray right now. Please help me pray. I'm giving up. Please help me pray. Um, and God is so faithful even in our weakness. Thank you, Gail. You see the fruitfulness from faithfulness, right? Through faithfulness, it's like they just kept praying and praying and praying, and, 
And God, uh, I, the thing I, like, I love about that story is that God gave them an opportunity to kind of reconcile, to be restored as husband and wife, and to be able to tell each other that they loved each other. I mean, that's phenomenal. When uh, dementia was taking that aspect away, um, God was faithful in the midst of that. And so <clears throat> last week we learned that the Spirit of God was with Joseph so that he was um, able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And Joseph had faithfully watered and weeded his relationship with God so that he could experience fruitfulness in God's time. And we once again learn from Joseph's example, our big idea today, that God blesses those who are faithful to him. And so as we think about that, let's just spend a little time in prayer. Let me just uh, commit it to the Lord, and uh, let's trust him for what he wants to do in our hearts and minds today. Lord, we just come to you today. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the principles that we can see in it. We're grateful for the, the fact that you are faithful when we are faithless. Lord, um, and we thank you that you just uh, provide all that we need in, the, in just the right time. And Lord, today as we see how you prospered Joseph in, in three different ways, I pray that you would just uh, help us to remain faithful um, until the time when you allow us to be fruitful. So Lord... Speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Speak to us through your word today. We just commit ourselves to you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see how Joseph was fruitful in his profession, with his progeny, and during paucity. And you're going, what in the world, Stuart? What does that last word mean? It means scarcity. So we're going to see that in the last section of this today. We're going to see it in those three areas. So let's look at his profession, how God allowed him to be fruitful in his profession. So uh, let's look at verses 39 to 49 and uh, see what God's word has to say. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift a hand or foot in in, uh, all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name... um, Zaphonath Penea, something like that, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went uh, out from, jo- from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. So we see God just allowing Joseph to be fruitful in his profession. First, we see Pharaoh's approval in verse 39. Pharaoh recognized God's hand at work in Joseph's life. God had given Joseph wisdom and discernment in interpreting Pharaoh's dream. And so Pharaoh wanted uh, someone with the Spirit of God in him to help run Egypt. He recognized that. The second thing we see under this profession is that Pharaoh's appointment in verses 40 to 45 
We see this first appointment. There it says Pharaoh had put Joseph in charge of his palace and everyone in the palace. The only thing that would, be, uh, that would separate Joseph from Pharaoh as it pertained to greatness was the throne that Pharaoh sat on. Joseph wouldn't have access to that. That was reserved only for Pharaoh. So Pharaoh was still in control, but he delegated the daily responsibilities to Joseph. We see the second appointment then when, jo- when Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the whole land in order to accomplish the plan that Joseph had shared with him. And so, again, first we see him appointing him over his palace and everybody in the palace, and then he appoints him to be uh, over every, all of the land. And so Pharaoh's seven steps to proclaim Joseph's position and power we see from Gangle and Bramer's commentary. The first one was a verbal appointment by Pharaoh. Pharaoh verbally said, you know, Joseph's in charge of everything. No, nothing's going to happen without Joseph saying so. Then uh, it's the giving of a signet ring. Joseph would have the power to validate documents in the name of Pharaoh. He was able to do business with Pharaoh's authority. He had that signet ring. He could... He could stamp it in the soft wax, and it would be so. He also dressed him in robes of fine linen. It was the the Busis, or Egyptian linen. Notice again that Joseph's being honored with special clothing. It's kind of been happening throughout his life a little bit. Then the placement of a gold chain around his neck. In addition to the fine linen robes, the gold chain would identify Joseph's rank, his status, and his office. So people were going to recognize that as he's walking around. Then he gets this public display in a chariot, right? <clears throat> and, then, and then next, the verbal charge to the Egyptians to make way before Joseph. So what Pharaoh's doing here is he's showing all of Egypt that Joseph's in charge. Like, you need to go to him. And then he gives him the assignment of a new name. So, uh, uh, Sophonath Paneach. And so... or God speaks and lives, or the God has said he will live. Hamilton in his commentary says that the narrator does not... Okay, how's that? Okay. Where were we? (laughs) That's right. So the fact that the narrator does not interpret Joseph's name means that Joseph's Egyptian name, whatever the best translation is, assumes no significant role in the narrative. And, And interestingly enough, we only see this name mentioned once. The narrator then goes back, and as he's explaining what... Pharaoh is saying he's using the word Joseph, the name Joseph again. So Joseph was now in charge of all Egypt. He went from being a royal prisoner to second in command all in one day. Wow. Imagine that. No one would do anything without Joseph's word. 
Uh, Matthew, in his commentary, says the expression hand and foot is a figure or a merism, meaning that every activity must meet with Joseph's approval. That's, that's quite a bit of power that he has. And then Joseph received a wife from Pharaoh. Uh, Asenath means belonging to the goddess Neth. She was the daughter of uh, Potipharah. His name means he whom the Ra gave, so the god, or the god Ra. He was the priest to the sun god Ra and served in the city of On. Now, <clears throat> at this time, the priest of On officiated at all major festivals and supervised lesser uh, priests who served the sun god Ra in the temple city of uh, Heliopolis. And so Gango and Bramer mentioned that. And uh, uh, On was also known by the Greek name Heliopolis, which means city of the sun. So again, it all fits together. And then the city um, Own was the prestigious religious center of Ra and Atum, the Egyptian solar deities. And so Heliopolis, or Own, was seven miles northeast of Cairo. So if you see uh, the Nile River kind of goes up that darker green section, you see um, Memphis and then uh, Cairo, and then right above that you see Heliopolis. So that's uh, where it was at. So Joseph's status in Egypt was firmly established when he arrived, or when he married, into the elite of Egyptian nobility. So this priest and his daughter, he's marrying into uh, a pretty high uh, standard there. Um, and so it's just establishing who he is within Egypt. So then Joseph went throughout the land. We see Joseph's achievements as he travels throughout Egypt in verses 46 to 49. Joseph was 30 years old when he began serving under Pharaoh. So that means that he's been a slave in Egypt for 13 years. And he was probably imprisoned for three of those 13 years. And we see again that Joseph went out and traveled throughout Egypt. He was probably traveling to the various cities doing two things. Appointing commissioners in each city. That was part of what his plan that the Lord had given to him. And then setting up storehouses in each city that would be guarded so that nobody would steal the food. And during the seven years of abundance, Joseph collected all the food produced in the fields surrounding each city, and then he had it stored in those cities so that eventually they could use it, the people that lived around those cities. When the seven years of famine would, would come, the commissioners in each city would distribute the food to the individuals in their area. And so the Lord's plan through Joseph was so successful that he stopped keeping records because it was immeasurable. He, just kept, he collected so much, he's like, I can't keep record of it anymore. And so we see God's abundance here. I skipped over verse 47 because I want us to come back to it so we can discuss God's sovereignty, His power, and His control at work. And so our first principle today is this, that God is in control. God provides for His plan in Egypt. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 47, it says, During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Hamilton says years of average production are replaced by seven abundant years. God's the one who gave Joseph the plan to ensure that Egypt would not be ruined by the famine. God then provides abundantly for them during those seven years. God provides for his plan in our lives. When we're faithful to the Lord and follow his plan, he will provide for that plan if we follow, are following him. How have you seen that worked out in your own life? How have we seen that worked out in the life of the church? Maybe you're ready to take this first next step today, and that's to just worship God for being in control of his plan in my life. Maybe we just need to recognize that today. 
And if you're not following God's plan, I encourage you to just start doing that. Talk to him. Find out from him what his plan is for your life. And then follow that plan. And he'll be in control. He'll guide and direct you in that. So Joseph was fruitful in his profession because he had been faithful to God. You see, God blesses those who are faithful to him. Now what we see next is fruitfulness in his progeny. So he had a couple of kids. Look at verses 50 to 52. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So during the seven years of abundance in Egypt, Joseph also saw fruitfulness in his family. He has these two sons. Joseph and Asenath uh, had Manasseh first, and his name means causing to forget. Joseph uh, gave his firstborn this name because God had made him forget all his troubles and all his father's household. Now, Wearsby points out that Joseph didn't forget his family or the events that occurred, but he did forget the pain and suffering that they had caused him. Uh, why would he name his children Hebrew names if he still didn't care about his family? He doesn't name his children Egyptian names. These are both Hebrew names. We know that Joseph had not forgotten his family, uh, again, because of his heritage and naming his children with these Hebrew names. One uh, author says the reason of this uh, forgetfulness and silence can only be found in the fact that through the wondrous alteration in his condition, he had been led to see that he was brought to Egypt according to the counsel of God and was redeemed by God from slavery and prison and had been exalted by him to be Lord over Egypt so that, knowing he was in the hand of God, the firmness of his faith led him to renounce all willful in interference with the purposes of God, which pointed to a still broader and more glorious goal. So the second principle we see today is this. God enables us, through his grace, to wipe out the pain and bad memories of the past so we can make a new beginning. Aren't you grateful for that? He enables us to do just to forget about that past, the pain and suffering that we went through, the bad memories, so that we can have a new beginning. God's grace means that we get something that we don't deserve, which is forgiveness of our sins and salvation through Jesus Christ. And because of God's incredible grace, we as followers of Jesus Christ can and should extend grace to others. That's exactly what Joseph is doing here in naming his son Manasseh and will be evident when he confronts his brothers. So how does this apply to us today? Maybe you have some hurts from the past. How many of us have hurts from the past that we're still dealing with today? We're still wrestling with. Have we extended grace and forgiveness to those that are involved, those that have hurt us? Whether or not they've asked for forgiveness, that doesn't matter. What matters is, before God, are we saying, I just forgive them. And I'm going to put that hurt and that pain in the past. Wearsby says grudges are like weeds in a lovely garden or germs in a healthy body. They just don't belong there. It's like they don't belong there, so don't let those grudges grow up. One illustration says this. While the Bible depicts forgetting mostly uh, in dire terms related to apostasy... It also uh, presents some instances when it is a blessing. 
There are some things we should forget. We do not want to be like the 55 individuals in the U.S. who have been diagnosed with hyperthymesia, also known as highly superior autobiographical memory, or HSAM. These people spend an excessive amount of time thinking about their pasts and display extraordinary ability to recall specific events. Alexandra Woof is one of the 55. In an interview for National Public Radio, she described how she remembers every detail of a mundane activity like driving to Target for groceries, which occurred more than 10 years ago. She remembers what she wore and ate every day for the past decade. She remembers if the fan in the bathroom was running on the, this date last year. Sometimes this extraordinary ability is an advantage, but at other times, many other times, it's a curse. One interviewee in the NPR report says that he remembers all the wrongs done against him and all the wrongs he has committed, and that every scenario is the basis of an episode from the television show House. A middle-aged character in that one episode with hyperthymesia remembers everything she did or said and did since the onset of puberty. She also remembers the wrongs people have done to her, and those memories haunt and harass her. The episode demonstrates, as the NPR story restates, that we need to forget as much as we need to remember. So when we forgive, we just need to forget those hurts. <clears throat> we certainly need to extend grace and forgiveness to past hurts, but we also need to do the same with current hurts. Perhaps we are currently dealing with uh, some hurt that needs to have grace and forgiveness applied to it. So don't let another day go by without extending grace and forgiveness. Decide today that you're going to do that. You're like, I'm just going to extend grace and forgiveness. We can make a new beginning. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, God's word tells us this. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, this is Paul speaking, forgetting what is behind and straining to, toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's like, I'm not going to worry about those things that happened in the past that kind of held me back from completing this thing that God has placed before me. I'm going to just keep focusing on him, and I'm going to press forward. <clears throat> we also see in Ephesians chapter um, 4. Let me get there. Verses 20 to 32. We read these words. You, however, <clears throat> did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body." In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, but that he may have something to share with those in need. We do not, uh, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to, the, to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, among, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to, any, to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So we can, we can forgive others because of what Christ has done for us. We can forgive and forget those things that have happened in our lives. 
I like what uh, Paul writes, and these are all from Paul's writings. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 17, tell us this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in those ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is, is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul has some incredible words, doesn't he? He's like, take off that old self, put on the new, forgive those hurts of the past and even the present. So maybe you're ready to take this second next step today, and that's to strive for a new beginning by allowing God's grace and forgiveness to be extended to my past and present hurts. And that's exactly what Joseph did. In the name of Joseph's first son, if the name of Joseph's first son, Manasseh, focuses on a God who preserves, the name of Joseph's second son, Ephraim, focuses on a God who blesses. That's what Hamilton tells us. So Ephraim means double ash heap, or I shall be doubly fruitful, or made, made me fruitful. Joseph gave his um, second son this name because God had made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. So our third principle today is this, that God blesses in suffering. It can be difficult for us to see and understand when we're going through suffering, right? How is God blessing through this? This doesn't make any sense to me. What? But he is. Many times after we've gone through the suffering, we're able to look back at the suffering and recognize God's blessing in it and through it. It's hard to see when we're in the middle of it, though. So maybe you're ready to take that third next step today, and that's just to worship the Lord for his blessing in my suffering. Joseph recognized God's blessing in his life. That's why he named his second son that way. So Joseph experienced fruitfulness with his progeny because he had been faithful to God. And you see, God blesses those who are faithful to him. Finally, Joseph experienced fruitfulness even when things got scarce. And that's what paucity means. It's the condition of having very little or not enough of something. Scarcity. Let's look at verses 53 to 57. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. 
When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. So the seven years of abundance came to an end, just as the Lord had said through Joseph when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. The seven years of famine began, and it didn't stop just in Egypt, but it spread over all the other lands surrounding them. And because Pharaoh listened to God's plan through Joseph, there was food in Egypt. Now, we don't know <clears throat> how long it took for the Egyptians to feel the pinch, but when they did, they cried to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh just pointed them to Joseph. He's like, he's in charge. I've delegated all of that to him. So he said, go to Joseph then, do whatever he tells you to do. And Joseph didn't open the storehouses immediately, but he waited until the famine spread over the whole country. And when he did open the storehouses, he sold grain to the Egyptians. But he also sold grain to all the other countries around, which was a part of God's plan. Joseph experienced fruitfulness even when there was scarcity of food in Egypt because he had been faithful to God's plan. That takes us back to our big idea today that God blesses those who are faithful to him. As we just review, <clears throat> do you need to worship the Lord for being in control of his plan in your life? Is it time for a new beginning? Are you ready to extend God's grace and forgiveness to someone who has hurt you? And then just a thought-provoking question, how has God blessed you even when you're suffering? You know, as a body of believers, we can worship the Lord for being in control of his plan and for blessing Idaville Church. But we need to ask ourselves, too, whom do we need to extend God's grace and forgiveness to as a body of believers? You know, I'm grateful that God blesses those who are faithful to him. George Lucas's 2012 film, Red Tails, provides a dramatized version of the true events behind a group of World War II soldiers called the Tuskegee Airmen. Formerly, uh, they belonged to a, the 332nd Fighter Group and the 477th bomb, Bomberment Group of the U.S. Army Air Corps. The, name, <clears throat> the nickname Red Tails was coined after the group painted the tails of their aircraft red. The Tuskegee Airmen became famous for two reasons. First, they were the first African-American military aviators in the, in the United States Armed Forces. But the Red Tails hold a special significance in American history, not just racially, but militarily. In the European Air War, U.S. bombers were getting shot down at increasingly alarming rates. The problem arose when the enemy attacked. Fighter pilots protecting the bombers would leave the bomber to engage enemy aircraft, through this, though this seemed like the obvious response, it meant leaving the bombers vulnerable to attack. Each lost bomber carried a crew of 10 or 11 Americans. The Tuskegee Airmen were brought in and given a different strategy. Never leave the bombers. Never. Regardless of what was happening around them. Um, so when the enemy attacked, stay the course and defend your charge. The result of their steadfast devotion only 25 of the hundreds of bombers they protected during the war were lost. Their stellar reputation became legend. If you flew a bomber, you wanted the red tails with you. On the movie screen, the Tuskegee Airmen gather around each other on an airstrip in a foreign land and shout their motto, the last plane, the last bullet, the last man, the last minute, we fight. 
The Tuskegee Airmen are celebrated not just because they were excellent pilots, but because they never wavered from their duty. They never left their charge. No matter what happened, they stayed faithful to their calling. So they were fruitful, right? They only lost 25 of the hundreds of bombers that they protected because they had remained faithful. And the same is true for us. We can be fruitful as we remain faithful to the Lord. And so I want to encourage you with those words today from God's word. As the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards, and as the worship team comes, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we uh, come to you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fruitfulness that we see through Joseph's faithfulness to you. Lord, you provided that fruitfulness in what he did for a living and in his own family. And then when things got scarce and difficult, because he was faithful to you and your plan, you had given more than they needed for the land of Egypt. You also provided for those countries around them. Lord, we just wait upon you for the fruitfulness that you want to provide for us individually and as a body of believers. Help us to always remain faithful. And we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.